Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for Top Docs Radio. Brought to you by Hyperbaric Physicians of Georgia, a comprehensive wound resolution and UHMS accredited hyperbaric medicine practice with four offices to serve you. Find us on the web at www.hbomdga.com. Facebook and Twitter at HBOMDGA. Good afternoon, everyone. It's C.W. Hall, your host here on Top Docs Radio. I'm very pleased to be joined in studio by one of the specialists that our practice works with on a, a frequent basis, Dr. Andrew Puglisi, an infectious disease specialist. And one of the things that we're going to be talking about uh, is a topic that uh, uh, is one that's kind of interesting and I think important in, in that many of the studies that we have out there in the world uh, in medical science that are trying to figure out various treatments for a number of diseases. You name the disease, diabetes, uh, some sort of infectious process, whatever it may be. Those studies often try, in most cases, try to exclude certain groups of people, whether they're beyond a certain age or people that come to the study with more than one disease, for example. They try to exclude those out and and uh, focus pr- on only on people that have just this disease in just this age range. Um, and from talking to Dr. Puglisi before we came on the air today, that's not really the the real picture out in the real world that these physicians who are trying to help these patients get better, um, it's not what they see. It's rare as the case nowadays, particularly as people are living longer, that someone's coming in with just a single problem. So uh, we'll get into that a little bit. He's He's got a blog article coming out, and we'll be talking about a study that, uh, that talks about this very thing. So I want to say thank you to you, Dr. Puglisi, for taking time out of the office to share some of this great information. So welcome to the studio, and uh, thanks for making some time. Thank you, Charles. Uh, I really appreciate this um, opportunity because um, this is a growing problem that we are seeing in medicine today, and that is uh, patients are presenting with multiple comorbidities, uh, or as I like to say, multimorbidities. In other words, you're not having a patient come in with one single problem that you're trying to treat. Uh, these patients are very complex. They have multiple problems. Um, one of the things that I think we all have to be aware of in today is that there are a lot of patients walking around today that 50 years ago would be dead. Mm-hmm. And um, that's because of all the advancements of the medical technology that has occurred over the last 50, 60 years. Um, you know, one of the biggest uh, fields that I'm involved with is in infectious diseases is the role of antibiotics in that right. period of time. And um, all of these medical technologies basically have a double-edged, they behave like a double-edged sword. We, we see the benefits, but then those benefits raise the ability for more complicated medical problems to occur down the line. When we talk about, for, you know, for the person that's out there and listening that's not a doctor, mm-hmm. uh, that doesn't understand necessarily all of our terms, when we talk about morbidity mm-hmm. and mortality, talk about the difference between those two. And that way, as mm-hmm. we say things like comorbidity and multiple morbidity, that way right. folks will know what we're talking about. Okay, morbidity is a secondary medical problem or pathology. Mortality is death. So patients can have what we would consider 
multiple morbidities. Uh, examples, you may have a patient with diverticulitis, but they also have diabetes, uh, hypercholesterol, maybe even some peripheral vascular disease. So their medical management is going to be a lot different than somebody that just has, purely has diverticulitis. Um, and because of human evolution, dietary changes, lack of exercise, all of this, we're seeing an increase in diabetes, especially type 2, right. and obesity. So, all, you know, obesity itself is considered a comorbidity. So, And what happens in that group, uh, whether they're a diabetic or a person with obesity or both, mm -hmm. then things begin to happen in the body with relation to the way certain receptors on cells perform, levels of certain hormones, things like that. Is that what you're talking about? Exactly. Um, even just in the healing process of, let's say, fat versus normal healthy muscle, uh, a lot of times we get involved with wound, wound infections in a patient which, who is morbidly obese, and it's not for any other reason is that the blood supply in the fat cells do not allow it to heal quickly. Uh, it doesn't allow uh, inflammatory cells to get there because the blood flow is just so sparse. And I, I was looking over a, a study that you shared that was out of Scotland, and it talked about this very topic. They looked at a wide range of people across a broad spectrum of backgrounds, heavily in the primary care data you know, set was where this was coming out of primary care. And it looked at how many people had more than one particular, you know, as we talked about, comorbidities or multiple morbidities. And it looked at things like... Um, how, how do socioeconomic factors come into play in terms of um, how many diseases a person has? Um, do they have psychological-type uh, problems along with that, um, psychological disorders like depression, for example, um, among others? And, and it found that um, many people, if they have a, a disease of one kind, they also very often have something else along with that, like you've said. Mm -hmm. And... Um, and those that are in the socioeconomically challenged areas tend to have a higher rate of both psychological disorders like depression and other factors like what we talked about here earlier on diabetes, obesity, uh, heart disease, different things like that that come into play and obviously affect you know their their overall uh, length of life. I mean, it was it, some of the things that leapt out at me in that study is that among the people with multiple morbidities, they had as much as, a, in the men, as much as a 13-year shorter lifespan, and women were as much as nine years shorter than folks who didn't have multiple morbidities. And it really talked about the fact that uh, it was, a, you know, and when you see it on the a graph of the results, the, the folks that were in those low socioeconomic areas were at much higher likelihood to have these various um, challenges. And even though it was Scotland, it, I, as I read it, I, I felt like there was some direct application to us here in Georgia because we have a heavy rural population. We have uh, a lot of folks in our, in our state and in our region that have 
socioeconomic challenges that put them down there where they may not be as well insured, for example, or have the financial means, even if they have insurance now, that they don't necessarily have the financial means because we all have an obligation. Um, when we're insured, we have to pay monies to get uh, to get care. So I, I think that this, the information in this has some relevance to us here in our local community. Uh, you're absolutely correct. Matter of fact, um, the United States is a, much more aware of multimorbidities than the rest of the world because we've been dealing with it for a lot longer. That's because we have uh, pretty much a much more diverse uh, patient population than uh, a lot of other countries in the world. And uh, also, uh, our lifestyle, which is now being incorporated throughout the world at a very rapid rate, uh, has led itself to. So we're more familiar of dealing with the patient with high cholesterol, diabetes, hypertension, and heart disease than, let's say, the rest of the world. But as you were saying, the socioeconomic impact um, uh, cannot be dismissed. You know, people that are at a lower socioeconomic uh, level uh, usually do carry more of these comorbidities or multimorbidities uh, than people that uh, are higher up on the socioeconomic scale uh, for a number of reasons, mostly education more than anything. Mm -hmm. um, and um, because of that, and then your point about depression, well, if you're dealing with four or five different uh, diseases simultaneously, you feel like your life is out of control it's understandable that you do have some depression. Uh, the, and then we get into a whole other set of circumstances in that you're not only taking medications for your diseases, but now you're taking a medication to cope with all of your diseases. And you start getting into drug-drug interactions. And that's what I was going to say is that that kind of is where things, where the rubber meets the road of our discussion here yeah. is, is dealing with the fact that when you have a disease like diabetes, for example, and or perhaps you're obese on top of that, um, that the way you respond to a given medicine, whether it's an antibiotic or some kind of hormone treatment, or you name the, the drug that we're trying to correct this type of problem with, the way my body responds to it may be different than the set of people that we studied when we developed the drug to begin with. You're absolutely correct, and that's one of the biggest problems I see with clinical trials today, uh, especially if we're examine, examining a medication in particular. Um, it, and that's what we call the exclusion criteria right so what happens is is that yes you do have disease x and we want to try medication a oh wait a second but you also have diseases y and z and you're on medication b and c well unfortunately you can't participate in the study okay great so we tease out all of these patients that just have disease X and we're going to give them medication A. And we do our clinical trial and we get a successful outcome and we publish our data. Great. But what is the reality of, of us in practice out there, the clinicians out in practice that are actually going to have 
patients that are going to just meet that certain criteria. You know, we don't have the benefit of excluding our patients. That's right. <laughs> we're talking with Dr. Andrew Puglisi, infectious disease consultants, and we're discussing how there's a little bit of a disparity between our studies that we do to produce a variety of medications that we're going to use to treat the, the, the diseases that our population faces. But we see in reality that uh, fewer are the patients that actually just come to <laughs> the doctor to be seen that just have a given single problem. And uh, we're talking about what we can do about that. Now, when, when we have a patient come in, like you're describing, you, 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 before we went on the air, you talked about how you were part of a clinical trial that was looking at a given medication. Forty patients in your practice had this particular problem that was going to be studied, yet 30-some-odd, um, ended up being excluded for one reason or another. Either they had, as we're talking about here, more than one problem along with that that, that, that we're saying, uh, you, you got to get taken out for that, or you're too old or, or too young, whatever the case may be. Um, how often in your practice do you see uh, someone come in with disease X, you're going to prescribe you know, what has been uh, a studied and released medical medical treatment for it, but it doesn't end up working just because, or at least you suspect it's because they have some other disease on top of that that kind of mutes the the effectiveness of that medication. Oh, absolutely. We see we see that all the time. Uh, it's very rare that we today see uh, a patient come in with just one medical problem. Uh, usually, there are multiple medical problems. So, um, our treatment decision tree is going to be a lot different than what is being portrayed a lot of times in the literature because we are not seeing that patient which just is going to present with one problem. The study you were mentioning, uh, yes, we had something like 40 patients that all had the same disease and we tried to get them into the study and only two of the 40 were That's accepted. Crazy. It is. It is crazy. What is even going to be crazier is once this drug is approved and articles are written and the pharmaceutical company is going to be marketing it, they're going to say, oh, look at the success we've had. But now knowing what I know is like, well, I don't know how successful that drug is going to be. Uh, given the fact that it was a very select few that uh, were put in the trial and not really giving a good representation of what we're seeing out there in the practice. Now, the study that we talked about earlier um, that looked at epidemiology of multimorbidity and implications mm. for healthcare, um, that is a relatively recent study. It came out uh, looking at it. It was published in 2012. Mm -hmm. um, so as more authors look at this and start to publish information like this that gives some kind of quantified data uh, about the fact that a huge portion of our populations that we're treating, whether they're low or you know, low socioeconomic folks or not, um, are, as these studies come out that mm -hmm. talk about the fact that, look, a single morbidity is rare, mm -hmm. particularly in the aging population, um, is that, in your mind, are you seeing any movement in the scientific arena that is beginning to try to be less exclusionary, if you will, that lets us pull in, we're going to look at celiac disease, so if you have celiac disease and diabetes, you're in. Yeah. Do you see that starting to change yet or no? Well, I haven't seen that change yet. 
Uh, matter of fact, the article that I'm going to publish on my blog is dealing with that fact is how do we think our way through the, the situation? Um, you know, it's becoming less and less reliable to uh, have these clinical trials where we're just hyper-focused on one disease process because that is not going to be uh, a real representation of what we're seeing out there uh, in the real world. Um, how do we approach that? Uh, I've given a couple of my beliefs. Uh, one is um, you, you really got to start listening to your patient, you know, because no two patients are the same. And it's pretty easy, I think, to get kind of tunnel vision if you're not careful. Exactly. And that's what I do see a lot of times. Uh, you know, uh, many of my patients have been to other practitioners before they come to me. And you could see how uh, the other practitioners were really just hyper-focused on the one right. problem in front of them and kind of not looking at the whole the patient in a whole. Uh, realizing that they're dealing with multimorbidities here. Uh, so again, that that it, it, it's a time-consuming process. Yeah, uh, it's painstaking, uh, and unfortunately, many of my colleagues uh, don't have that luxury. Yeah, you know, I I I have the ability to create that luxury because I have a very uh, dedicated staff. Um, so, but you know, you do pick up a lot in the history uh, and you do see, you know, especially again, a lot of what I deal with is chronic disease. Uh, I do believe also from an educational point of view uh, in training uh, new physicians that are coming into uh, practice, really I, I do believe we need to start training them to listen better and also to think that's something that is also missing. Yeah, and, and I was, as, I, as we've been talking, I, in my mind I was mm -hmm. thinking, obviously many of our clinical trials, which mm -hmm. want randomization and they want blinded, uh, things like that, mm -hmm. obviously those are important and they have value, but also just general data, case study data, is, is useful to, to contribute to the body of knowledge and the body of uh, scientific information that's out there. And, uh, and while reporting a case study or a, case, a series of case studies has less, if you will, scientific power, um, I still think that that will add to the body of literature, if you will. And, but again, the, the challenge that you talked about is time. It's, if you're going to write a paper that mm -hmm. writes up a case series... yeah. That's time-consuming. It is. It is. And, and again, um, we have to change the mindset at the academic level where it's like, okay, guys, we got to get away from these clinical trials and these decision trees and start looking at smaller case studies, maybe a group of patients with multiple morbidities, and see how these patients in particular were treated, what worked, what didn't work. Um, and, and this would be can be developed with a really good foundation of basic medical knowledge. Um, you know, one of the frustrations that not only myself but many of our colleagues have when we take boards is, you know, you got to look for the keyword and, you know, yep. and, you know, and, <laughs> and, okay, you just have these two keywords and you know what the disease process is and that's all they want to know. Um, so... Uh, this will be a very big challenge for our test taking uh, 
uh, ability to really uh, evaluate what's going on with patients in general. Uh, so it's, it, it, you know, there will be challenges. Um, you know, one, one thing that I would love to work towards is creating a journal just based on case studies. Yeah. You know, something is, uh, that, that kind of got me thinking last week, actually, I had a guest on, we sat around talking about, you know, the, uh, changes in legislation around healthcare that have obviously been impacting things pretty significantly. And, and I think that we, you know, it talked about the focus was on the cost of healthcare and how we've got to try to rein it in. And obviously we do. Uh, for me, as I thought about that conversation, one of the things that I believe is a potential um, solution, because I've been, as we've talked, I haven't yet been able to figure out, well, what do we do about this? How do we, we've got to change the way we do studies for one thing. But the other rising opportunity in my mind that our healthcare community hasn't really fully embraced yet to its complete power, and that is the use of data. Um, if you look at other verticals out there that are using uh, data lakes, if you will, as they call them, and um, the ability to have all this, all these variety of data points in a data lake, most of the time in the old days when we were designing a uh, a system of some kind that's going to compile data for us. We had to know what kind of questions we we're going to ask it when we built the, the system so that we can then query it. Tell me, in, in a healthcare case, show me the number of patients that had this and that. And mm -hmm. we had to know what going in as we were designing the database, mm -hmm. what questions we're going to ask it. Um, nowadays, they, with the way data is handled, they actually have the ability to put in data points into this data lake, and you can create queries on the fly that will now give you real-time information and answers um, based on, kind of like Google, if you will. Google doesn't know what you're going to ask it, but it, um, it has the ability to then reference all across this massive field of data and give you some valid responses. Um, I'm, I'm thinking that being able to have, uh, with the electronic medical records that we're using now, obviously HIPAA is a problem. we got to protect our private data, but if we're able to scrub the CW Hall off of the data, and it's now just a 47-year-old male that has high cholesterol and whatever else you put in there, then if we are able to create a data lake, of, if you will, as they come to see a physician, we might be able to then begin to see certain things like that. Um, when Show me people that have heart disease and diabetes, and now all of a sudden we can begin to see some pictures that were not visible before. So, you know, obviously that's, uh, it's not today, but it's, the technology is available to do certain things like that, and, and maybe we can kind of take You're, advantage you, of some of that. Tie that, you got you to tie systems together, mm -hmm. but there may be a possibility there. Yeah, um, uh, you're absolutely correct. I mean, our ability to, uh, I like to call it data mining, yeah. um, is much more greater today than it was back when I was in my residency and fellowship. Um, you know, I, I have colleagues that are in other fields of medicine that um, within their groups, you know, their notes have to be done in a certain way because their clinical data is going to be utilized by uh, different companies to see clinical outcomes based on what's going on. Um, you know, so th there is a, a lot of new technology 
that's going to help us design better ways of helping us manage these very complex patients. Uh, again, my belief is, is that if you have a very strong foundation and you really understand the disease processes, then you can kind of work your way through the problem to get a favorable outcome. Um, the big factor, the X factor here is this type of work is going to be time consuming. Mm -hmm. um, you know, how are the clinicians going to get reimbursed for the, this type of time? Uh, we need more clinicians in, in, uh, to yeah. deal with these patients. <laughs> I mean, you know, we, we're about to have a physician shortage <laughs> in this country yeah. and throughout the world. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, we do have mid-levels and, you know, uh, physicians, assistants, nurse practitioners. There are multitudes of clinicians that can help us, but, you know, we need to be putting in more numbers here, not less. Right. Uh, you know, uh, we need to start using more of an open mind on how to treat diseases. Uh, you were talking about case reports and stuff like that. I cannot tell you. Uh, over the past several years, how many case reports I tried to get published. And, and that's just it. You, yeah. So you have to, even with a case case report or a case series, you have to submit it and yeah. somebody has to agree to pick it up. Yeah. And, you know, it, you know, for lack of a better term, uh, I've gotten several letters back, uh, you know, get away from me, kid. You're bothering me. Mm -hmm. um, I'm sorry, you know. And obviously the, the journal or the publication that you're going into is important because yeah. if it's, if it's in a lesser journal or yeah. if it's not peer reviewed, then the medical community at large will go. That, yeah, that, that, you know, and some dude wrote that on on, on weekend. And it's no big deal. It <laughs> doesn't mean anything. Yeah, you know, um, uh, um, yeah, and it it and it is frustrating. And honestly, you talk to a number of physicians that are outside of the academic arena, and. They all say the same things. Yeah, I have these great, interesting cases, and nobody wants to hear about it, you know. Uh, yeah. So, um, you know, the academic community is going to have to take a step forward and realize that um, the way we're designing our clinical trials now are not really meeting up with the demands of the patients, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, as I ended the article, you know, the human population is evolving. Yep. Okay. And the medical community is going to have to evolve in order to meet the demands of these new patients. And so earlier we were talking on that note, you were talking about how obviously in the history taking and our interview process with the patient that in, in your mind, that's one of the places where we as clinicians can kind of help improve how we approach this complex patient, not just focus to go back to, uh, say, C. difficile, since you're infectious disease, and that's a patient that you probably see frequently. Mm -hmm. um, from, from based on what we were saying, that when we do a, a study to try to evaluate the effectiveness of a given medication for that patient, right. we try to exclude everybody that doesn't have anything but C. difficile. C. difficile. Um, you're saying that if we are able to not just focus on the C. difficile part of this patient, but, oh, this patient is obese. This patient does have diabetes. They do have XYZ uh, hormonal type imbalance or whatever the case may be that 
we want to make sure we pull that in and see if that doesn't somehow contribute to their response to my treatment of their C. difficile. Absolutely. Yeah. And any other advice for that provider in terms of, as you've been able to incorporate it, because I think one of the big things is, as as you are uh, bringing to us today, is just being aware of this fact. Because science, as we've talked about, medical science, they don't want to look at a multi-morbid uh-huh. patient. They want to see, we're, we're, we're looking at C. diff, so we're going to treat only C. diff. Um, What's your recommendation for the for your peers who might be listening today to be able to kind of work around that? Um, our, our science is aimed at one disease, but with our, your patient in the office has this disease plus two others. Yeah. Um, what I have found that works for me is to broaden your um, broaden your um, educational foundation. In other words, get outside of your discipline. Take uh, take a course uh, or, you know, you're, instead of just concentrating on getting recertified in your particular field of medicine, get involved with other aspects that you may see in, um, in your practice. Um, I'll use me as an example. Uh, yes, I am um, board certified in infectious disease. I'm also board certified in sleep. Uh, I cannot tell you how many times people come to me with chronic fatigue syndrome or chronic Epstein-Barr virus, and they're complaining of fatigue, and what I find is is that they actually have a sleep-related problem, either sleep apnea or narcolepsy, right? Well, if I didn't have that training in sleep medicine... uh, You'd be trying to do all kinds of tests and... Yeah, seeking out what is the reason why they have this fatigue when it's as simple as the fact that they don't right. sleep well. Yeah, and perfectly, <laughs> uh, and perfect. And again, one of the articles in my blog, uh, it's termed "Sleeping Beauty," was a 19-year-old ballerina that did have Epstein-Barr virus. Uh, she had mononucleosis when she was 16, had fatigue, and for three years, at now at 19, was still complaining of fatigue. Well, she had gone to multiple specialists before coming to see me. And, you know, yeah, you got chronic Epstein-Barr, you got this, you got that. Okay, fine. So uh, her physician sent her to me to put her on an antiviral therapy to see if I could reduce the Epstein-Barr titers. And so I examined her, and you're talking somebody who looked like Natalie Portman when she played uh, Black Swan. Right. Okay. Thin, petite. I looked in her mouth. She had two of the hugest tonsils I've ever seen. And I was like, hmm. We did a sleep study. Sure enough, she had moderate sleep apnea. Um, Courtney French, who is my partner in crime, uh, <laughs> ENT, he took out the tonsils and her fatigue went away. What do you know? Uh, yeah, what do you know? Now, interestingly enough, indirectly, yes, the mononucleosis did cause her fatigue because mono causes tonsillar hypertrophy. Her her tonsils never went back down to baseline. That's interesting. Yeah. Because our focus was on the viral content in her body. Right. And not looking <laughs> at, you know. This so, giant tree is keeping me from seeing the forest. <laughs> a, exactly. Um, so, um, and, you know, uh, you and I were talking before the show, um, because I'm seeing more de- demand in wound care mm-hmm. and hyperbarics, you know, I took time out of my busy schedule to take a 60-hour course in 
wound care and hyperbaric medicine. Right. Uh, this is all to help my patients. So, yeah. so this is the challenge that's going to be for the clinician in the future to get outside of your comfort zone instead of just putting on the blinders, this is what I know. And I don't want to look outside of that. Get outside of your comfort zone. Learn other things. Become aware of what else is out there. And then you'll be able to help these more complex patients. Is there a recommendation for the patient side? If, if someone today is listening and they're dealing with a couple of different problems, do they have, you have advice for them? Or is, I guess my personal advice for patients out there in the community, it doesn't matter what disease process that we're dealing with, mm-hmm. particularly with the information that's available online nowadays. Now, obviously, there's a bunch of less less reliable sources, but if you're going to, a, um, say, a Mayo Clinic site or even uh, WebMD, mm-hmm. uh, you know, some reputable places that put out uh, information. Um, I think it's very vital for us t- as a patient when we become one to really get to know about that just because there are potential possibilities out there. You talked about hyperbaric medicine. We see that this factor in our, in our specialty a lot where we know the science behind the, the the specialty of hyperbaric medicine there's a patient in the community that has problem x maybe it's radiation mm-hmm. and the patient doesn't know because they haven't really looked they go to the doctor the doctor's the expert the doctor whatever the doctor tells them or doesn't is all they know yeah. and so therefore they don't know that in their community is a is a treatment modality whether you know in our case we're talking hyperbaric medicine but substitute whatever it doesn't matter the disease process exactly if you rely exclusively as a patient on the provider or providers that you're seeing for your information, you could be missing something, truly. Just because whoever you're dealing with, great, great physician they may be, um, they're only as good as the information that they've got within them. If they've not been exposed to something else, some other literature or some other, as you talked about, um, other mo- how other morbidities might affect them, then you as a patient are missing the opportunity to advocate for yourself because it's important to be able to say, hey, what about this? What about that? That's a great point. Um, one of the things that I try to accomplish with my blog is to bring this awareness mm-hmm. to the layperson. Uh, and uh, my belief and what I do as part of my patient management, I actually try and educate my patient on what's going on with them because my belief is the more education you have on the disease disease or diseases that you're dealing with um the better the outcome is going to be because you have a better understanding um you know with the power of the internet which again could be good and bad Mm -hmm. um you know if you find a reputable website or a blog where it's like, hmm, you know, or let me read up on some of these different things uh, where the patient can actually take the time and educate themselves. The difficulty then becomes and going to your clinician saying, hey, look, I looked this up and, you know. Uh, I think a lot of people are afraid to do that. I yeah, think that they're afraid yeah. to ask their provider for fear of offending them. Yeah. And I'm sure that there's many times where someone does come in mm-hmm. um, having read some decent information, asking questions, and they are poo-pooed. They are shot down. No, no, no. Yeah. That's hooey. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and, and uh, you know, look, I've, I've, I've been in that spot for many years, okay? 
um, you're, and I try to keep an open mind um, because, again, I don't know it all, right. and I may learn something. Um, I'll give you a perfect example. I had a woman come to me several years ago. She goes, I've been diagnosed with burning mouth syndrome. <laughs> okay. <laughs> burning mouth syndrome. She pulled out these clinical trials that were given to her by her dentist. This was in the dental literature, burning mouth syndrome, right? Um, and I listened to her. She said, I tried the yeast-free diet. I tried the sugar-free diet. I, you know, she goes, nothing worse. She goes, all I know is if I eat tomatoes or I have a glass of wine, my burning mouth syndrome gets worse. And I looked at her. I said, you got reflux. And sure enough, we tried. I gave her a trial of a proton pump inhibitor that I had in, you know, in my, in my closet. <laughs> said, here, try this. And I gave her a two-week supply. And I said, come back in two weeks. We'll see what's going on. Well, you know, schedules, everything. She came back in three weeks. And I said, well, how are you doing? She goes, oh, you're right on the money. She goes, because for two weeks, I did not have it. And then the week that I <laughs> didn't have it, it came back. So, but, you, you know... I never heard of burning mouth syndrome, but there it was in the dental literature. But, you know, you you start seeing it's like, okay, so and, and again I joke with my patients because sometimes they will come in with their with their sheets and everything like this and I just tell them I say, Look, I don't charge extra uh, you know, for you bringing in the Google stuff. Yeah. Um <laughs> and you are correct. There is a lot of you know, information out there and, you know, I do do work with Lyme disease and, you know, people will come in and say, well, Google says that I probably have Bartonella. And I was like, yeah, and you're on a medication that covers Bartonella. But they'll say, no, 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 clindamycin is the only drug. You know, I was like, <laughs> yeah, no, there are other drugs. And, you know, and, and, and again, especially in the arena of Lyme disease, uh, people don't feel good. Uh, they get dismissed a lot by a lot of different patients. Yeah. I mean, doctors and clinicians, and they'll be told you can't have Lyme disease in Georgia and all this stuff. <laughs> and um, it's a clinical diagnosis. That's the biggest problem with Lyme disease. Uh, we don't have a reliable test. Uh, testing is very insensitive. Um, and uh, again, Lyme disease can mimic so many other diseases. So uh, it's kind of hard. But um, you need to, uh, again, keep an open mind, talk to your patient, examine where they're getting their literature from. Mm -hmm. That's another problem. Yeah. You know, it's like, yeah. you know, uh, what's that great commercial? Oh, you can't lie on the internet. Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was on yeah. there. Yeah. Yeah, you know, that's right. Okay. Um, so <laughs> if you get something from, you know, and, and again, some, some of these blog sites, people are pretty militant about, you know, disease process and, you know, yeah, I got to deal, you know, again, conspiracy theories and all that stuff. So it, it, I'm sure it's a fine line, yes. obviously, in terms of the the person who the, the folks that are probably going to be the most uh, persistent with regards to things like that. What we're talking about here, where mm -hmm. they come in with information that they've found mm -hmm. is is when they're not getting better. If whatever yeah. we're doing, if I've yeah. particularly if I've been to this doctor now, I've been to that doctor, and what my problems persisted. Yeah. It's just the new doctor. Yeah, uh, I'm sure that that's where that really begins to come into play because mm -hmm. they're they're looking for something. Yeah. I, I guess my you know end point on that topic is at least educate yourself as much as you can. Yes. Um, 
don't be afraid to ask questions about what about this? Have we thought about that? Because, I mean, just like you talked about uh, as providers being you know, open to the fact that these other diseases that this person is coming to, to you know, kind of keep it with uh, in the theme of what we're talking about here, where we have multiple problems contributing yeah. to our, our current state, mm-hmm. um, is just to have a greater awareness and, and to have a, a broader broader spectrum than or broader focus than just this problem at hand and again it goes back to where we originally started is because the patient that is presenting today is much more complex than the patient from 50 years ago Mm -hmm. and our science hasn't really caught up with that fact just yet exactly so hopefully with more studies like one that we were talking about here out of out of scotland and there's going to be i'm hopeful that more of those will talk about that so that Mm -hmm when a pharmaceutical company wants to do a trial that they will bring in that multifactorial patient mm-hmm. to, just because that's the real world patient. Exactly. Any other thoughts that we have before we uh, jump off today? Uh, that's about it. Again, um, this is, you know, with our, the ability to travel globally, uh, all this awareness throughout the world, uh, this is going to become the mainstay. Mm-hmm. I know through reading your blog that one of the things that you do a lot of focus on is diet and, and um, environmental factors, dietary factors, as they relate to things that can either exacerbate infections, for example, or cause uh, the, the body to have symptoms as though they have, that emulate certain disease processes that may be entirely allergic allergic responses to either a food or, a, or an environmental factor. So maybe sometime we'll come back and we'll talk about how our kitchen and what we're putting in our face actually could have a big impact on oh, absolutely. our disease state or state of health. Perfect. Thanks. Well, I want to say thank you very much to Dr. Andrew Puglisi, infectious disease consultants, uh, coming in and sharing some expertise today, uh, taking time out of his busy office day to uh, uh, talk about something I think is a... Is a a major factor that we need to consider, and that is few of us uh, in the community actually go to a doctor with just a single problem, and that we want to continue to be aware of that and make sure if we're a patient that's listening today that you go into the doctor and um, maybe you're going to be seen for celiac disease, but make sure that we talk a lot about the fact that I'm also a diabetic and other things that may come into play if you've got some other things going on that we keep that in the discussion because those things could end up impacting our response to whatever treatment course that we take. So um, for our patients out there, try to be educated and engaging and open about all the things that we're dealing with. And from our provider's perspective, as Dr. Puglisi was talking about, being able to really keep a a focus beyond necessarily what my area of expertise is, that uh, those other diseases that the patient brings with them into our office today very well may impact the effectiveness of whatever treatment course we decide to take. So Thanks for taking the, the, the time to uh, give us that information. We look forward to having Dr. Puglisi back. Uh, he's been on the show a few times, and for good reason. He gives us some great information. Uh, thanks, you all, for making us a part of your afternoon again today. We'll see you same time, same place next week. 